Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Owatari Dorgan. With me, as always, is a man who would probably not just leave a dead body floating in the river. I am the Adam Glass. And if I thought I might get in trouble, you would totally I would leave. definitely run away. Here's my, my thought on that. Like, I feel like that should, that, I mean, I'm sure it, it is that in the movie, but like, it's such a it's such a dead giveaway. This man is not a gentleman that he will like <laughs> right, just right. leave one of his comrades just floating in the river. Ah, fuck it, I don't want to get in trouble. He does make sure he's dead first. I mean, and that not does just by not shooting. Feel him. like it's <laughs> like the like. Oh well, he's dead. It's fine. He's not human anymore, Pat. You can just ignore him. I mean, I'm not sure that the person we're talking about would care if he was human or or alive. He's a trash for that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he's more than just checking for his own, like, worry, once again, worried about being, uh, being found out. Pat, before we get into the movie this week, I do want to talk about our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash lostincriterion. Over there for a dollar a month, you can help keep us going and get access to some bonus content. We do a non-criterion film each month. Our supporters get to vote on what we're going to watch. Uh, let's us do a little bit of a wider selection than the Criterion Collection offers us. Not that the Criterion Collection offers us some sort of thin <laughs> selection unified of unified vision. It's just, it's just an ever-growing list. And yeah. we've we've created our own ever growing list. Uh is all that that's all that the bonus episodes have yeah, done. No, it's just it's um, just a different list. Yeah. A much smaller ever growing list at this point. Only about sixty five episodes over there, I think. Uh but yeah, we have a lot of fun. Usually. I mean, I mean our speak most, for yourself. Our most <laughs> one of our recent episodes was absolutely the worst movie we've ever watched. I don't even remember what uh, was it. What was the one that we hated so much? I can't. My bl- I don't even want to mention out. it because you're going to get you're going to get mad if I mention. I it. I literally have blocked this out. I Sergeant Pepper's oh, Lonely right. Hearts Club Band. Oh man, that was very painful. We've also watched some really great movies over there, like Critters Two. It's one dollar a month. Get you access to vote. Get you access to uh, not not vote in the election the in the United catalog. States. This is a, to vote on. Oh, our yeah. podcast yeah. list. Let's be very clear. You don't have to. You don't have to pay to vote. Uh, well, eh, I eh, mean, <laughs> there's definitely a poll tax at this point, but you know what I mean. <laughs> there, are, there, are, there are not. Uh, there's nothing in the U.S. called a poll tax, but there's right, certainly right. As long poll as we taxes don't call all it over what the it US. is. We're good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> by some obfuscation, there is a poll tax in probably every state, um, because that's America. Yep. And we inhabit that spirit of democracy by charging you a dollar to vote yeah, on to what vote. bonus in our in our little in our little mini our little mini uh, terrible country. But I, but where where we do draw the line is that if you give us more than a dollar, you don't get more than one vote. But you do get some other bonus stuff. A little above that one dollar mark, uh, five dollars for folks who help keep us going, help pay our bills a little bit more. I'm very grateful to them, especially this month when our uh, our hosting bill came due and I wasn't Oof. expecting it. So. Uh oh! Spent had to had to uh, re up on the Podbean, and I mean at least it's cheaper yeah, than what we used to do. Unexpected. We half the it cost is, for is. twice as much service. Yes, it is significantly cheaper than what Squarespace was charging us. Um, anyway, uh, very happy to have uh, 
have those $5 supporters, so much so, in fact, that we thank them on air. Very thankful to Andrew Jarrett, Eric Coronado, Stephen Goldmeyer, and Chris Otto, our $5 supporters yes, right thank now. You so much. A bit above that, we do something pretty dang special. Yeah, we do. Every month, Pat picks a movie we watched recently, sometimes from the main podcast, sometimes, sometimes from the Sometimes I screw up, but episodes. I picked the wrong month because... Sometimes you know. he screws up and picks the wrong month. That's only happened once. Yeah. He makes a piece of art based on that movie. The last one he made, uh, physical art, photography, very nice. Bought I'm a bunch of props. Of really love it. I mean, it's I no, it's no, it's no, it. uh, it's no, uh, you know, um, monkeys, but you know, it's it was pretty. Oh, good. the monkeys one was. The fantastic. monkeys is literally probably the most uh, proud I've ever been of anything I've ever made. Yeah. If you want to know more about what we're talking about, you can support us for ten dollars. And you get thanked on air for that too, and you get that po- uh, that piece of art That's as a postcard, postcard and a little personalized note with me as well, from me as well. Ah, uh, like to thank those folks. Thank you so much to Neem Bajnak, Patrick Yako, Adam Speakerman, Jason Westaver, and Tracy McGrath. Yes, thank you. If you want to see those postcards without committing that ten dollar mark or buy them, uh, buy past them. ones at least. Head over to Redbubble.com, search for Lasting Criteria in there. Our stuff should pop up, and most of those past postcards are up there. They're put up on a little bit of a delay so that our supporters get them first. Uh, and also, a couple have been challenged over the years and have been removed from the Redbubble store. Some serious because, bullshit. Yes, because of that. Thank you so much to everyone who has purchased anything from the Redbubble store. Thank you so much to all of our Patreon supporters. And thank you for listening. Thank you, everybody. We love you very much. That this week, we're going to talk about another Lucino Visconti right. movie. The, one of the world's We haven't talked about a Visconti mistakes. movie for a while. Yeah. Oh, sorry, not the movie. <laughs> the movie is not the world's greatest mistake. Although I think I like The Leopard better, if I'm being totally honest. Oh, well, The Leopard's his masterpiece. Yeah, I mean, The Leopard um, is, is Previously. I, it's been a long yeah. time, but, but I just have such fond memories of that movie. Yeah. Yeah, we watched... <sighs> Oh, man. The Leopard was so long ago. It was a very long time. I only have the vaguest memories of The Leopard, but I remember really liking it. And so... This is is spine number 556. The Leopard was spine number 235. So, five years ago. Five years ago? It could be worse. I think, actually. Six numbers, time. But The Leopard was super impressive, and Visconti made a a real impact on on us at that time. Um. We also watched one other Visconti film over the years. At spine number 296, uh, we watched Le Nette Bianca, um, I don't remember that White one. Knights, based on the Dostoevsky uh, story. All oh, right. right. Um, that was the episode where, where you said one of my favorite things you've ever said, that uh, suggesting you read Dostoevsky is like giving you a second job. And exactly. <laughs> it's true. And I loved it. Um, but I really love that movie as well. Um, weird thing about Visconti is his movie, Obsession, which is not in the Criterion Collection, um, is an adaptation of The Postman Always Rings Twice, and it was made in 1943 in Italy, uh, and is sometimes regarded as the first neorealist film. Interesting. Uh, it is not always listed as the first Italian neorealist film. Let's be clear here. No, some... no set of critics can ever agree completely on any one. Right, right. One on the on the definitions there, and yeah, and we're we're certainly not in a better position to. Uh, oh, certainly not. I don't know my ass from a hole. To talk about what isn't isn't 
a neorealist film? If I had to guess, I'd say probably, unlike, say, Rossellini, who made Rome Open City during occupation, Visconti probably did not view the stuff he had to do <laughs> as uh, in order to get a movie made during the war as an aesthetic choice. Right, 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 <laughs> right. Yeah, that's... I mean, and I can see where you would, he would come from with, right? Like, that's that's a yeah. hard thing to, like, uh, you know, is, are the pressures of the time and the place and the way they shape what you do, Yeah, it's obviously part of the art, but if you don't have any control over it, is it part of your art? You know what I mean? Like, is it part of something you've done? Right. It's right. a tough call. And I don't know, I don't know that that's what it is, but... Like Rossellini, Visconti is someone who, uh, as soon as he no longer had those restrictions, those material restrictions, <laughs> no, uh, yeah. started making much, much, much bigger movies. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and this certainly qualifies, and The Leopard certainly qualifies. Of course, The Leopard was also, uh, what year was The Leopard? I think The Leopard uh, was like 10 years after this. Yeah, it's quite a bit later, yeah. So, I mean... I mean, yeah. he's only, he's one of those guys, it's so interesting to look at, like, different directors, um, I mean, he's also making operas at the time, so, like, you know, he's pretty busy, but right. Right. Uh, it's always interesting to look at, like, the difference that can exist in, like, a, six, in, in, depending on where you look, what time, like, when it is, and, like, where they're working, like, how different the, like, filmography pages of, like, I say air quotes just because air quotes helps, you know, just quote, unquote, successful directors because that's such a sort of undefined definable thing but you know once you have full like robust wikipedia pages right and you'll get like ones that are like (laughs) making one one movie every five to six years and you'll like and then like on the flip side you'll go to some other director sometimes working in the same country you're like he's making three films a year like every year right right, for 50 years yeah yeah um which Visconti, in Italy, Scotty only uh, made like twelve films total, or something like that. Right, right. In Italy, if you're making three films a year, is a pretty good indication that we don't like your politics. Uh, right. but, um, one thing about Visconti that I don't remember ever talking about before uh, is that he worked under Jean Renoir in the '30s, lived in France, um, and I think that this movie, Senso, has some pretty clear Renoir influence, uh, much more than. I would have found in uh, The Leopard or White Knights. Um, I think one of the main one of the main things I think about when I say that is that Renoir, being the son of a painter, right? Uh, many of the Renoir films we have seen use actual existent paintings as inspiration for frames of the movie, right? Uh, and that is something that happens a lot in <laughs> Senso as well uh and there's uh it comes up a little bit in some bonus features um but if you really wanted to get into it i'm sure there's a lot that aren't even covered in the bonus features of visual inspiration he is taking from various paintings of the age of when the film is set right Uh, a session kicked off the italian neorealism uh and then senzo is not a neorealist film whatsoever nope uh it, it it feels like somebody asked him, "Hey, can you make Italian Gone with the Wind?" <laughs> well, 
<laughs> well, you joke about that, but that was actually one of the one of the advertising lines. Of, oh, was it? Uh, I mean, it's it has the of feel of it. It has the, the same sort of. Yeah. I, I mean, the leopard. Yeah, I do remember that that was a thing with the leopard, but <laughs> yeah. it does feel like that's. I don't sort feel of like the leopard is his here. first sh- stab at that. It yeah. has the feel yeah, and I think of that that kind of like hyper dramatic historical tale right. even here, right? Like we can see like the leopard's very successful at that. Uh, yeah. but you know, yeah. This the leopard is more well. successful at that than this is. Uh but I feel like this story would have been more successful as an Italian answer to Gone with the Wind than uh yeah, I'm trying to remember the leopard, leopard story necessarily anymore. was. I don't really remember it very well, honestly. So the leopard was Burt Lancaster right. as a Sicilian uh, aristocrat throwing a party, and it basically takes place over the night. <laughs> like the bulk of the last half of the movie is is the night of his party. Well, but yeah, um, no, I kind of get it though. But I, it's him. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, it's him coming to terms with the fact that Sicily and the Italian Italy as a whole is moving toward uh, moving toward democracy, and that. Maybe he'll be elected, but he won't have won't have the power that he has had in the past. And he is very. I mean, I we've all seen accepting how of giving Italian up that politics power. actually worked out. Of course, he can't see the future, but uh, no, he'd right, definitely right, be right, elected, right? Uh, and would have <laughs> yes. at least as much power as he has right now. Yeah, um, almost certainly. Uh, the leopard does take place in the same time frame as Senso does, of course. Uh, the one basically opposite ends of the country. The, leopard being in evil, Sicily the and evil time. Yes, the evil time. <laughs> Why can't Sicily um, just be Sicily? Come on. Sicily could just be Sicily. That is fair. Part of the I think a lot of Sicilians would probably agree that Sicily could just be Sicily. Uh, yes. Uh, Giobaldi was just a very charismatic guy. And <laughs> Giobaldi wanted well, there to be one Italian state. Again... <laughs> We shall I what, shall I walk you through the process that we're talking about here? It's always just a really charismatic guy who puts you on the road to fascism. Uh, to be to be fair, Giobaldi himself not a fascist. I know that's Giobaldi not, that's himself not the point just I'm, wanted democracy. I, I, it's not the point I'm trying to make. Although I know. there's a very reasonable and very well thought out series of arguments that argue that the the sort of liberal democracy movements are of course yes. inherently and incredibly bourgeoisie, right? And, and therefore, we'll yes. always sort of have only one conceivable outcome, because right. the bourgeois, like bourgeois ruled by the bourgeoisie, will always future. lead one place. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, the, I mean, we, I mean, as far as we know, because we have no evidence of it not ever doing that. Though there are plenty, like German unification happening at the same time as this film is set failed. Uh, the mid eighteen, the mid nineteenth century. Right, but but the, but the same process uh, eventually leads you to the unified German but, state, which is which then yes. also eventually become becomes what it becomes. Right, it it, it does the same right, process. Right, right. They all do. Right, France went through it. Everybody went through it. Right, and yeah, you know, the U.S. went through it. Uh, it's going through it. Everyone, pretty much every every Western democracy is 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 not has gone through it. Some of them went through it worse in the past. But everyone's sort of going through it right now, right? Too. And and, so. and you know the ar- the argument, the primary argument that, make, and then what makes sort of some place like France a little bit different is that France sort of understanding itself as a unify as a not needing to go through a reuni- a unification of city of 
states in quite the same way that a lot of disparate yeah. parts of the um, of the Holy Roman Empire needed to go through in order to become this, the countries they became. That process mm-hmm. of unifying those disparate like nation states involved a lot of a lot of propaganda and a lot of talking about the idea that we're one people, right? And then the argument right. that we're all one people eventually leads you to the sort of fascist notion of you know X place for X people, right? Uh, yeah, I think I think it's probably an easier argument that all of the Gauls are one people. You could probably even argue that all the Iberians are one people much more easily than you can even argue that all the Italians are one people. Yeah, absolutely. Italians but, can't even understand each other. Right, and, and and that has a lot to do with. I mean, you know, you can you can see the same sort of thing happening in in Japan at the uh, a little bit later than all this, but but the same basic process that does lead you to a fascist state eventually. And we don't talk about it here, and we don't talk about it. In almost any of the Italian unification stuff that we've seen in film, uh, but of course, by the time we get to the fascists, outright that that Italian identity is tied so directly to Rome, right? Uh, historical. Well, that's that. Rome. I think that's also a like a, a fundamental character. Like I, you know, fascism being sort of a weird, a hard thing to define in in like its core, right? Uh, that's always part of it, right? You've got the you have to bind everybody to the the main place right everything has to descend down yeah. from the main place you know you get berlin being the sort of dictator of the whole country you get uh, rome being sort of the the determiner of yeah what is italy berlin defines what is germany you know tokyo defines right. what is and germany. of course so many so many hard right governments throughout europe have uh declared themselves to be the legitimate heirs to the Roman Empire. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, which is easy to right. do when every single nation state that made up your country yeah, was a part of the like, Roman the Holy Roman yeah. Empire at some point or another. Well, yeah, right. for for a very long time. Uh yeah. Even even Russia views itself as Oh yeah, well, and, 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 and you I know, mean, talk about talk about unification uh, as a <laughs> as a uh, colonialist project. Right. <laughs> Russia is a pretty big one too. Right. Oh, yeah, for uh, sure. Like, I mean, you just, it's, I, you know, we could spend all day on it, but like, basically, yeah. there's, it's just, a, there's stra- it's a straight line, basically. You, you do the thing, yeah. and you get the, the, you get, you do X thing, and you get Y result, basically, every single time. Right. Um, to balance that. Yes. Uh, and of course, I, <laughs> we've, we've, ha- we've had these discussions very recently in other films. Uh, I am I am someone who, at my very core, as much as I admire that a lot of what I want to see in the world would require a level of organization indistinguishable from government, uh, I'm an anarchist. Yes, <laughs> I, I'm aware. I'm well aware. I, I believe that, uh, I very legitimately believe that Fascism is an an inevitable consequence of not even liberal democracy necessarily, but just pretty much any any government organization at any point. No, I I I also recognize that that thing is going to happen. Uh, yeah. I just also it, you you run into sort of a fundamental like crux it, of a problem, which is like at some yeah. point somebody has to make some sort of rule. Yeah, I think that is something. actually where France gets interesting. Is that while France has occasionally ended up more fascist than other times, and and France right now is 
by no means a leftist paradise. Right. France is a country that is willing to reinvent itself every 25 I, years. One has to admire a place that was is willing to burn the, all the shit down every every X number of years. It seems like yeah. a it seems like a good paradigm to adopt if you don't want to accidentally find yourself in a in a place where you uh can't ever turn around. Right. Like America being sort of the opposite of that, right? Where like we've decided that the constitution is written in stone and is not in fact a li- yes. living document in any capacity. Right, right, right. No, that shit shit yeah. does not get to change. Not allowed. Yeah. Well, uh pulling back to the movie, uh I guess in the historical context of the film, I will I will say that uh the mid nineteenth century revolutions, uh while setting up a state that, as you've said, and as I agree, probably inevitably yeah, it's will due. lead to something yeah. fascistic in the future, uh, are in their time fighting an oppressive force. Right. Well, I mean, that's it, that's sort of inherent to the whole be it thing. The aristocracy, right? or or you know, the royalty, or be it this occupational force of Austrians, which is just the royalty, right? Because the, 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 the occupying is, Austrians, yeah. bear in mind, are are essentially that, that the whole situation is very complicated, right? That that the aristocracy yeah. that is quote unquote occupying that area is also or the, the, the force that is occupying there is also just by by rules of aristocracy and all that bullshit is not actually an occupying force. It is just a you know, it gets kind of complicated because you're 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 talking about like rights of inheritance and all this bullshit, right? Like it's just right, like, right, right, it becomes right. an occupying force because enough people look at it and say, Hey, this is bullshit. Why are the Austrians here? Well, right. as it turns out the Austrians are, you know, as much legitimate heirs of this place as, as this other group of people. You know what I mean? Like they're all cousins and yeah. uncles and shit anyway. Um And I and I also to push back against something I said earlier, Sicily uh accepted. I think Italy has a geographic uh, justification for claiming single Italy uh, in the Alps, separating it from Austria. Certainly, I feel like the uh, right. But using using like and I and I the well, people in our movie should identify as Italian more as Austrian. I guess. Well, yeah, that, 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 that whole thing's complicated, right? Like, one could make an argument about like language or something like that. But you, when you get into like what makes you well, one you can't make or one, you can't really make the argument about language in Italy though exactly. because everyone's speaking such a such a different dialect and and, and that's <laughs> that's what I'm talking about is it's like you have to you when you build these sort of like liberal democ- democratic unified states you have to pick and choose what are the things that you're going to look at and say hey this makes us one people and which things you're going to like essentially sort of sweep under the rug cuz you're like mm, we're pretty different um right and those right. differences are important and and you have to build an entire sort of psychological sort of propaganda machine to like iron over those differences, right? And sometimes that machine has to be like through the force of arms, right? Like sometimes right. you have to forcefully make all the people in your in the country start speaking standard X language because mm-hmm. you can't just sweep that under the rug. They in order to be a unified state, we all have to be able to understand each other, quote unquote, right? Um, right. And, and that, that you, you see even in that, in the nation building phase of building these liberal democracies, you are doing some fascism. Right. 
or at least in the very immediate post aftermath, right? You write a constitution, and that, and then you inevitably, unless you fucked up and you're the United, you know, you you write part of your constitution. This is the national language or something to that effect, right? Or even if you don't write it down, you all just assume uh, because you wrote it in Rome, and then before you know it, you've got dudes with guns essentially deciding what gets taught in schools to make sure that everybody's learning the correct italian or the right, correct right, right, x right. language yeah. or, you know um i'm just saying i have no love for sort yeah. of bourgeoisie uh what? uh rebellions for to build democracy because they'll they'll use the proletariat to achieve that end but it's not yeah. for the purpose of building a, a place for the proletariat to to thrive in now, to push back against against that and against maybe my own ideology a little bit, I think outside of the West, nationalist movements have been particularly successful in uh, overthrowing Western colonialism. Right, but bear uh, in mind that you're not— And— Okay, go ahead. Sorry, I, I, I not to cut you off, but— and often installing an actual legitimate leftist government. Well, but you know, yeah, <laughs> but, no, I I agree, but I also but don't even think then, those are nationalist takes, movements. I don't think they, yeah, they they're a different thing because they're you know, for example, if you look at Vietnam, you're not talking about a bunch of Vietnamese nation states right, operating right, independently right. that need to be like unified against a, uh, the colonial powers. Right. Like, we use we use the term national nationalists to describe both those groups, but they really are different things in right. what they are doing and what their end goals right. are. Like, and, right, and some of this is because those places went through those processes so much longer in the past. That unification was mm-hmm. hundreds and hundreds of years before the colonial powers even basically showed up. So you, you, yeah. you already have a national identity, and then the national identity gets attacked. But, you know, you still do end up with people doing some fascism. It's not like that doesn't happen. Right, uh, right, right. Just a different process. Right. Yeah, Play, plenty of plenty of times those same nationalistic movements, uh, while while overcoming uh, colonialism, have have done a genocide. Yeah. Uh, so sometimes you get run out of your country, and you end up in Taiwan. Yeah. <laughs> and who was in Taiwan before you? Yeah. Well, we don't we don't so. talk about. We we don't we don't need to go down that rabbit hole right now, um, but yeah. So, Senso, <laughs> yes, the a politically movie complicated that we're film. ostensibly here to talk about. Uh, well, plus yeah. part of the problem with, with no, talking no, about the an movie interesting... is it's it's framing is so interesting and engaging. Yeah, but it's fundamentally the story of of uh, this romantic affair, like this affair that that is that is actually just a a man committing fraud on this other person, who's <laughs> yes, like and, well, it's it's that it's a it's a it's kind of a classic sort of story, right? This um, I don't know what to call it, like a con man, right? Like a sort of con man story. Yeah, we the audience, it's full of like dramatic irony. We the audience look at it and go, this this shithead is bad news, uh, but he's able to sweep this sweep the uh, she's a countess, right? Uh, Countess, is that right? Yes. Yeah, Countess off her feet, partially because like, oh, somebody's paying attention to me in a in a romantic manner rather than like, as though I'm just some sort of weird furniture that they keep around the house. Uh, boy, that yeah. is extremely thrilling, right? Uh, I I can only imagine if it's the first time anyone has ever really paid attention to you in that capacity, how exciting that yeah. must be. Which is which is where the title comes from. 
was ultimately. Or is it? I don't know. I didn't know what sense like of I didn't look it up. I don't know how to use Wikipedia. Yeah, I mean, I just there smash is, my hands there is the, the literal. And sometimes stuff happens. There is, of course, the the cognate. It is the word for sense, but colloquially, it it often means a feeling or or lust, even, uh, and lust is where we get here. Uh, what's interesting is that all of the engaging stuff you just talked about in this movie uh, is changes Visconti made to the book. <laughs> so, oh, really? So, like, was the book so the, not about... Wait, so you're talking about... We, we, clarify. Get to work. Tell me what you're talking the about. The book The book this movie is based off of, which is I also did, called Senso. I did Senso. not know it was based on a book. Um, so we're, we're, we're off to... As far as I know, it's also called Senso. Um, it's... Uh, <laughs> The book is it's by someone named Camilo Bo, uh, Boito. Boito. Um, it is set during this time period. Okay. Our Italian countess does have an affair with an Austrian lieutenant. Okay. However, uh, there are no Italian unification forces in the book. Huh. The her side of the war is never mentioned, basically. Huh. As far as I understand the book, okay. Um, and obviously, I've not read it, so um, this is this is commentary on what's different. Uh, another thing that's different is that there's a framing element to the book that it's twenty or thirty years on, and she is rereading her diaries and reflecting on this young love. In the book, she is a twenty-two-year-old countess. Uh, who is married to a much older man and has an affair with a much older man. Whereas in our movie, she is an older woman who has an affair with a much younger man. Um, so within the book, there is a certain level of naivety uh, that, of course, our our countess has in this film yeah, as well. Yeah, that, that, that part's still uh, carried over but, completely. But she's fully an adult in the movie right? and is making these decisions... As much as she might be making these decisions under duress or under, um, not duress, but you know, without without knowing all of the details, obviously, um, <clears throat> she's still making an active decision to do these things. Whereas the twenty-two-year-old, I don't know how the book presents it, but one could certainly argue that the twenty-two-year-old is not not actually making active decisions. She's just being used by various older people. Right, right. You know, uh, if there's that much sort of like sort of power differential and stuff like that, right? Yes. Yes. Um, so, so yeah, her age is different. Um, his age and name are different. Uh, there is no cousin. There's no Italian unification forces. Um, I mean, I'm glad no, that that's she has in no here tie it does make to, a, an interesting framing device that without it, I would yeah. be probably a little bit like, mm. Yeah, I think it's much more, much more of a compelling story than just what the love story would have been. Uh, Visconti's own politics we've talked about in the past, certainly when we talked about uh, the uh, the leopard. Uh, Visconti is known as the Red Count. He himself has a <laughs> and the Red Count, not like a Vlad the Impaler Red Count. Which uh, I mean, he's not a vampire I, as far as I know. Could be both. He comes from money. He comes from aristocracy, but he. Is a huge supporter of the Italian Communist Party. Um, whether or not that ultimately means him giving up his own stuff, 
I don't know. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that's always that's always he a, might be a, a tough question. Like uh, he might be more ideologically supportive of the Italian communists than he is materially supportive, though. Though certainly he's giving them money as well, in, material in that manner. Uh, whether or not it's material about changing his own status, I don't know. But I don't think the man died in poverty. I guess is what no, I'm saying. I don't think so. But, but I don't. I don't think that's ever really like part of the requirements of the system, right? Is it's more like hey. In my mind, it's always sort of operated as a, well, I'm going to hope that this comes about and maybe, you know, if if we ever go through some sort of uh, communist revolution and, and like, that yeah. means I don't get to have the thing I have and I have to, like, sort of turn it over to the state, I'm just going to say, fine. Right. Like. Yeah. Yeah. Visconti is very much like the, uh, like the main character of The Leopard in, in that. You know, he is he is aristocracy who sees the way the country is going is like, hey, I like that. It probably means I'm going to be in a bad spot. But right. Well, that's <laughs> that's a, the thing. Right. The is same it, there's spot that, that sort of idea of like, well, I, I fundamentally at a, on a fundamental level support this idea. And if yeah. that means that someday I'm going to have to come to terms with the fact that like something's not going to go my way anymore. Well, right. OK. And, and to Visconti. And we can see this in the leopard too. Uh Italian unification the the forces of the third war of Italian unification that we're talking about, Gibaldi's era, um, are a stand-in for the struggles of the communists in his era right. versus the fascists. Whereas, uh, even though the fascists are represented in the leopard as just the rest of the aristocracy and in this movie as an, an actual outside force, right? The Hungarians are the, or the Austrians are the, uh, are the fascists as far as that metaphor goes. Uh, so, you know, we get, we get him shoehorning <laughs> politics into this love right, story right. in a really, in a way that actually makes it a compelling movie, right? Uh, her, her love story, not that compelling. Beautiful. Yeah, I mean that's that great. I, although I will say, like you know, in that way, be, because it is just so rife with, with um, sort of dramatic irony, I I found it pretty compelling. Not not because I like care about her love affair, but it's, it's one of those like you're kind of rubbernecking a a, a head on collision that you absolutely know is happening, and you, it, it it can get pretty engaging that way. You kind of find yourself getting right. frustrated and sort of if you're me at least starting to get angry at the TV, which is actually, <laughs> oddly enough, I was going to come in here and complain because, um, and not because they did a bad job of that, but because I don't like that feeling. I, whenever a, a movie or TV show has this, it, it's more often than not enough to maybe turn the movie off or the TV. I just find something about that feeling is so, I hate it so much in such a stupid way that I kind of, will like will actively just like t- turn off a movie or a TV show if it has that as a sort of element. I don't know why, but like I'm just not I'm just not built to handle it. And so I mean like in this situation I right. have to tolerate because that's that's how this podcast works. You you do things yes. to torture me and I have to just put up with them. Um <laughs> I blame I blame you for all of my ills. Okay, I need you to understand this. Okay. Um Um Well you were lucky enough not to watch the other version of this movie that is also on the disc. Oh, the the American uh, version or whatever. Yes, the Wanton Countess. 
Um, that makes it sound so a 90 slanderous. Cut. I don't know what that could possibly be like. Yeah. Uh, it's a 90-minute cut. It's English language uh, with both uh, Granger and, and Valley, our two, our two leads, speaking English. Um, Valley, by the Ooh, way, we have seen like. before. She is... She is the uh, she's the woman in the third man. Oh, okay. Uh, and there's basically only woman in the third man. Right. Um, there's only just the. The reason I watched it, and and perhaps the only point of interest, is that the English language dialogue is written by Tennessee Williams and Paul Bowles. Um, I can't believe you did it. I thought we. Yeah. I was under the impression that you respected your own I, time enough that. Like well, we also ended up having that. a little extra time. That's we? true. That's very true. Uh, so we had to cancel the f- the first schedule of this recording. Shh, don't um, tell anybody. It's okay. It's being inside baseball. It's fine. Um, How the sausage is made. So, so I was also interested not only with the Tennessee Williams dialogue. Obviously, Visconti has a uh, you know he, he's already adapted the Postman Always Rings twice. He's got uh, an affinity for. Uh, stage period, but but English language stage particularly. He had already, as far as I know, he's getting into opera this year. But he'd already been producing, uh, directing stage plays, and had already adapted, I think, Cat on the Hot Tin Roof, or at least some other Tennessee Williams piece. Huh, um, okay. But it's thirty minutes shorter, which is really really where I was interesting uh, interested seeing what the American version cut out. Uh huh. Um. So what did the and American version cut out? There's about three major time cuts. One, in the opening scene, uh, the opening sequence, uh, we jump from the duel to her leaving the uh, the opera house. So the countess and the lieutenant never meet inside the opera house. Whereas in, in the cut of the film you watched, they have like a five, ten minute conversation. Well, I, I hope in her you box, also watched right? both cuts. Friends. Yes, of course I watched <laughs> I, I'm them. just joking. Like the way yes. you said that just sounded like um, there's also significant significant cuts to the war, basically. Uh all of the war scenes are cut shorter. Um But the two most interesting things that get cut to me. One when she goes, when the when the uh, the maid tells her someone stopped by and left her an address, and she assumes that it's Franz, so she goes out and her husband follows her, mm-hmm. and then she gets there and she admits to her husband that she's come here to meet her lover, and they open the door and it's her cousin. Uh, in that scene, in the longer version, in the Italian version, the husband has a conversation with the cousin in which he explains his pragmatic reasons for supporting <laughs> right yes yeah the unification army and in which he promises an amount of money which is the amount of money she eventually gives to friends right right she she steals that money that her husband has promised to the rebels in the american cut he doesn't have that conversation okay so in the english language cut so in the does english the movie language make cut any fucking sense not a lot. Uh, in the it is still understood that the money that she gives to Franz is the rebels' money, but it's not understood that it's the husband's money. 
So she is only betraying her husband uh, in marriage fidelity terms and only betraying the rebels in financial terms instead of also betraying her husband in financial terms when she takes that money and gives it to Franz, hmm. um, which I find a little interesting and also doesn't doesn't establish that her husband supports unification. Um, even though <laughs> he has all those hoops to jump through <laughs> to say, well, I only support it because financially it'll make sense for me in the long run to support it. But uh, the other the other really interesting major cut that definitely changes the way the movie feels is the ending. Uh, in the ending of the Italian version, she betrays him to his bosses uh, and he is immediately executed. Right. The best part of the movie. But the best part of the movie. But that is intercut with her having an emotional breakdown dealing with the fact that she just had him murdered. Uh, in the English language version, we see a shot of her coming down the stairs from the general's office looking melancholy or perhaps smug. Uh, and then we cut to his, his, his execution and never see her again. Oh, weird. So there's no, she has no emotional breakdown reaction to, to that. It just ends with his, so she's just, uh, with so, his execution. So she's just cold hearted in the, in the yes. American version. Yes. In the American version, she's just cold hearted. That is, that is interesting. Yeah. Which definitely changes. <laughs> like she's wanton, I suppose. Wanton. Um, I keep saying wanton, not wanton like she's the, because that's the, that's a whole the count thing. the count of dumplings. Yes, um, <laughs> delicious. But, uh, but yeah, she's uh, yeah, yeah, which makes the American version a much worse film, even if the dialogue I is mean, written by Tennessee I, Williams. That, is that uh, is that not always the case? These weird. Yes. Yes. Like nightmare American versions are always just hot garbage, basically. Yeah, I feel like that. I feel um, like that's literally a hundred percent of the time the case. Some things that would have made the American version more interesting, uh-huh. uh, and the Italian version different, at least, uh, is that casting-wise, uh, neither of our two leads were Visconti's choices. <laughs> okay, um, like Alita anything. Valley was the second choice. And Farley Granger was the second choice. Um, Valley, at least, was his choice eventually. Uh, but Granger seems to have been someone forced on him by uh, producers. Hmm. Uh, originally, he wanted Ingrid Bergman to be the female lead. And oh. Bergman was in Italy because she had just ma- married Rossellini. And either Bergman or Rossellini, it's unclear which... Uh, did not want Bergman starring in any movies for any of his rival directors. Right. Uh, I think we can. So guess. she said no. Um, we can. Yeah, we can guess who who's ultimately behind that. Yeah. Um, for the male lead, Visconti had originally wanted uh, Marlon Brando. <coughs> They got budget. And Marlon Brando, well, it wasn't even budget. I know. I'm just, um, I'm just busy. It's because the way that I, I understand that, like, when the, when the sort of special features are like, um, we got somebody who is, you know, they got Farley Granger and they, they talk a lot of 
big game about him in the thing. It's like, but for me personally, he is. I'm like, I don't know this guy. Not really. <laughs> yeah. So you know, Brando had he'd already been working right. Um, on the waterfront had already come out, I believe. Uh, if he wasn't actively, there's a there's a few different versions of why Brando wasn't in this movie. And one is that he had a scheduling conflict, uh, which might have been with On the Waterfront, if it's true. Um, another is that the producers said he wasn't bankable enough and that Granger was the more bankable star, so they wanted to go with him. Uh, Brando did come to Italy and do a screen test, apparently. Um, but ultimately, they did not. They did not go with him. Maybe rejected by the producers. There's also a rumor that once he heard Bergman wasn't going to be in it, he wasn't interested anymore. Uh, so there's there's a lot of reasons presented of why Brando ultimately is in, in this movie. Enough that it seems likely that Brando was never actually going to be in this movie. Yeah, <laughs> just, it does. It, it does was, at some point feel like, hey, wait a minute. Yeah. Are you guys just bullshitting us yeah. here? Yeah. Um, interesting about Valley. Um, being uh being cast is that she actually is a countess she's an austrian countess well there you go uh that just works out so yeah that's easy um she already knows what to do yeah she already knows what to do how to be a countess yeah exactly (laughs) she's got that that lived experience do do that thing you do that's how devoted she is to the method she was born to play a countess she's born into it (laughs) yeah True method acting. Uh, Just being the yes. thing. Uh, but yeah, so uh, another thing that somebody says in one of the bonus features, I think it's uh, assistant director, or I can't remember who it was, um, is that in his opinion, and I think this is right, Brando is too charismatic for this role. Yeah, I think no, the I fact can see that. that. We, like, Brando's just yeah. so, especially at this time, is just so smoldering. Yeah. That, like, it might ruin the uh the sort of dramatic irony that allows you and me and everybody else who's watching the movie like this guy's gonna fuck her over hard uh, is right. fucking her over hard you might actually farley granger think that brando is like somebody you want to fall in love with right right yeah farley granger you know perhaps just because you and i are not familiar with him um he doesn't have the same level of natural charisma as Brando, certainly. Uh, but also, I don't have any pre, uh, pre-associations with him being someone I should trust or right, care right, about. Right, right, so. right. And yeah, no, and that, and that works, right? Because like you and I walk yeah. into this movie in about the perfect position. It's like, I don't know who the fuck this guy is. But he is doing a very <laughs> good job of acting like yeah, a no, guy who is right. like, like a comment like i don't know how to describe it that sort of like that put on charm that like mm-hmm. as an audience we get to look at and go like oh yeah this guy this bad bad news and but oh, like, but but plays yeah. well on the screen for the where you're like but you know you can also sympathize with why she's like falling for him, right it, it works well he right. does an excellent job i'm not complaining about him as an actor uh i just have no idea like the, the bonus features like so we got, well, who we think is, like, the way they describe it is just sort of like the 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 imminent Farley Granger. I'm like, the who? Yeah. The, the, the what now? 
They don't actually say that, but I can't. They, the way they describe him was like, as though I should know who he is. Yeah. A man and, who you did know, not. I he mean, starred like, in Strangers on the Train. Yeah. He <laughs> he is. Um, people know who he is. He's uh, I mean, he's one of the. This time know who he is. I mean, and and I understand that I should, but I don't because I don't know who anybody yeah. is. But like, nonetheless, he is not of a piece with Marlon Brando. Okay, let's just be very clear here. Yeah, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, he's not even. I don't know. Hitchcock obviously liked him because he was in Rope as as uh, a side character. And then he stars in Stranger on a Train um, a few years later. But I don't know. There's Looking through Granger's filmography, Rope and Stranger on the Train are the only things I've ever seen that he's in. Uh, right. And I did not, unlike, unlike almost every other Hitchcock film, uh, I did not watch Stranger on the Train and think, I need to know everything else about that male lead. Right, <laughs> like, right, right. He's not... Uh, he is not on the level of other Hitchcock leads. He's not. He's not Jimmy Stewart. He's not uh, <laughs> Cary Grant. He's not anybody. Um, at least to me. Uh, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's. I mean, super great, and eh, I should know everything about him. But it, it, I, I, yeah, I don't know. It, it's it's not really important. But like now, you know, in the end, I I. He was good for this part. Like he's he's exactly yeah. what you need here. He is charismatic enough that you believe that the the that the countess is falling for him but not quite charismatic right. enough that the audience falls for him perfect ideal yeah and i don't i don't remember where i read it but i was left with the impression that uh one of the reasons this movie did not do so well in the US is that a lot of people went expecting granger to be a classical male lead and when he's a scoundrel people didn't like it I mean, uh, I can see that, right? Because I have to, I am forced to assume that I am not the only person who, like, I understand that this is a genre of film. I, 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 I understand everything that's happening to me and to the movie does not change the fact that it dry, that I find these kinds of stories to be almost unbearable and not because they're bad, yeah. but because they do something to my brain that makes me want to scream and run around the room. The, which is not a good place. The thing, not a good thing to do in a movie theater. It is. It is very good that the American version of this film, the English language version of this film, uh, does not cut out all of the war bits. Right. If this were a straight adaptation, or a, even just a straight and slightly straighter adaptation of the novel, this would be a very boring to us melodrama. Yes. Visconti elevates that by adding the war elements and by shooting it incredibly. The opening yes, sequence in the opera, beautiful, marvelous. I mean, his use. I mean, uh, they they talked a little bit in the book. I think this is the one that I I watched the bonus feature so long ago. Um, yeah, they talk about um, the fact that like they are using um, like it's one of the first times anybody's used the the uh, the tri the the sort of. Um, the Technicolor system, the Technicolor, the the weird. Yes, yeah. in, in Italy, this is the first right. Technicolor that's film. I mean. That's what I mean. Among the to, first Technicolor films, certainly Visconti's first like, color film. Period. Three pieces of film, yeah. each recording a different color, and then you layer them. That whole system is real fucked up and weird. Um, and like, 
one can see how he takes to it like a fish to water. Like his yeah. color work is so fucking amazing that just. And yeah. then I, I, there's also that thing in the bonus feature. Where it's like they told us we're not allowed to shoot white. We told them to go fuck themselves. <laughs> Basically, yes. And then figured out how to shoot white. Yeah, it's amazing. Like, I was like, how the fuck did they even like, do that? It's amazing. literally impossible on Technicolor. And then they did it. And then they just right? did it anyway. They're like, ah, so, fuck you guys. We'll figure yeah. it out. Yeah. Oh, I forgot the the other rumored reason of why Brando wasn't in the film is that someone, uh, someone higher up than Brando in in Brando's. Uh, hierarchy of people making decisions for him. Right. Uh, told him it would be a bad decision in 1954 to star in an Italian communist movie. Uh, I mean, that that is understandable, because, right? Like, yeah. Uh, not, you know, I one, one can easily understand why you would want to avoid being in the... Visconti films prior to this had not been shown in the U.S. Uh, right, of course. Because... What, because what the would man be was, a, was a communist. communist? Yes. Yeah. And we all know mind you, there were only like three or four Visconti films. Right, before but this, like I mean, we are. I, I I don't. You'd have. I'd have yeah. to look at the. We'd have to do the math to figure out exactly where this fits into the into the McCarthy era. But like, it's not hard yeah. to figure out. Right. Right. Yeah. So, just <laughs> Brando's loss. Yeah, um, I mean, but also again, again. I I didn't Granger does really that, fantastically like, in this movie, and I think he's better. He's better fit for the role. The beauty of this movie, the fact that they went through three cinematographers because the first one died during production, and the second one, the cinematographer from uh, the Third Man, also fantastically shot movie, um, just hated working on it. Apparently, <laughs> just <laughs> I always love it when it's just like I don't like this. This is bad yeah. for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it does sound like Visconti is a so that the guy who ends up person, the guy right? we get interviewed, yeah, the guy we get interviewed and the guy who ends up doing most of the shooting for this movie is just like some rando. <laughs> it's, it's like it's the assistant, the assistant production, um, and just one of Visconti's friends, a camera operator who is thrust into being second unit production <laughs> director, right? Um, because Robert Krasker just hates working on this movie, apparently. Right. I think the war scenes, I, I was disappointed that the American version cut out the war scenes uh, because I think they're all shot very well, very artistically. Um, and also obviously based on paintings of the era. Right. Uh, like yeah. The, I mean, like soldiers, directly one to one. And it's kind yeah. of crazy. The soldiers uh, walking out of the, the haystacks, just a beautiful shot. Yeah, it is. It, um, it works really well. It, it's interesting because he does a really interesting thing uh, because of like cutting in those sort of. They're not still shots, but they, they are references to paintings, and they have a certain sort of uh, stillness when he wants you to notice that this is like a painting. Yes. Um, like the kiss as well. Yeah. Right. So when he does that, things slow down a little bit, right? And and it creates, especially with the war scene, it creates this like false sense that like that there's something gentlemanly about the whole thing, right? Like this, it gives you this false impression yeah. that like, oh, well, like. You know, it gives you this false impression that it's going to be like what every fucking general talks about war being in this era of this sort of gentlemanly pursuit and all this stuff. And then later on in the film, it's just a bunch of dudes just getting their shit fucked up. Yes. Like real bad. And and it's just hell. And it's like it's a really it creates a really interesting dichotomy because it kind of like points out 
sort of the sort of the deception that is those sorts of paintings, right? Like how those paintings right. don't they've always failed to convey what's really true about this thing. And right. And of course, you know, it makes sense for someone like Visconti to portray the Austrians as all assholes, right? And every 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 I mean, Austrian we meet is a bad guy. Uh but but you know, to to be to have fidelity to the historical aspect of this and have them still win, even if ultimately you're blaming their victory on this woman uh, betraying the cause, right? right by giving right. away that money. Though, though the movie doesn't make that really explicit either. Um, well, yeah, I mean the movie <clears throat> the movie English sort of goes out of its way doesn't. to avoid like because she's. At some point, because she is essentially our point of view character, at some point she's so caught up in in this personal drama that she can't really give the war any attention at all. Right. And because of that, we we as the audience also lose sight of the war, right? It's a thing that she drives by. Uh yes. It's a thing that like we see out the window for her because at this point Whereas at the beginning of the movie, she is engaged with it. It's a thing. And like we watch right. our ability as the audience to engage with it decrease because we're not, she, we, we, she can't pay attention to it anymore. There's just too much right. going on for her, yeah. for her to give it her full attention. Yeah. And I and think it's that's her... deeply interesting. Yeah. Which is, which is even more because she's been seduced away from caring about the war. Right. 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 Um, it it just is is all the more uh, bad on him for being that seductive force. Right. Uh, not only is she sleeping with the enemy, but she's sleeping with the enemy who ultimately her devotion to causes her to stop caring about the political state of her own people and also causes her to, without even thinking about what she is doing or the consequences of what she is doing, or even ultimately experiencing the consequences of what she is doing, right. gives away the war chest. Because we cut, we cut from her giving him that money. Uh, as far as as far as like her experiences that we're seeing, she gives her the, uh, him the money, and then some time later, she arrives back in Venice to find him sleeping with a teenage prostitute. Right. Uh, there's no consequences like, for her or for like we don't see any of that. It. Yeah, we see the war, and we see the war fall apart, but uh, or at least this particular battle fall apart. Um, but how does her husband react to this money being missing? How does her cousin react to this money not being there anymore? Uh, none who gets blamed? Matters, right. What? None of that matters, and none of that is experienced within the story. And ultimately, even her emotional breakdown seems much more largely based on the betrayal of this man that she loved more than on the realization that she has uh, possibly doomed. <laughs> Well, Venice. I think I think like she, I I I have to assume that you know just based on the movie, right? That you know we don't we don't know, but one has to assume that part and parcel of that um, of that realization is also realizing that she betrayed everything she believed in, right? For this, right? Like it's not just because it there's something um, the 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 actor that plays the, the countess. Definitely throws a little bit of extra, a little extra um, spice in there, right? Like it's not, uh, yeah. 
she's not jet like it's it's more than just like there's just there's just more than you would get in a in somebody playing somebody who's been like a jilted lover right like she right. knows right. I think and is fair. coming and suddenly has to come to grips in a really like really intense way that she portrayed everything she believed in yeah uh yeah and her and her breakdown at the end of the longer cut of the movie she's really breaking down right and then yeah no she it's sells, really she sells intense. all the emotional it's very good all the emotional weight yeah as as the austrian soldiers celebrate all around her right. uh and we keep cutting back to to her lover being put to death um yeah yeah and that whole his execution scene is another phenomenally shot scene well yeah there's that um, whole story they talk- that they've got about uh how like about lighting that how scene. you how yeah. you could it, it was impossible to light that scene so we just did it yes again again okay. all of the all of their stories are essentially that uh everyone said this was impossible or it literally was impossible or no one had ever done anything like this before um so we just did it yeah it i love it i just so did, just it did it over it anyway. i did it in the evening after everybody went home it was fine yeah 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 Auto story about lighting that scene. So I I hid the lighting in the alcoves, and then I called Visconti down. And Visconti said, "Where are the lights?" I said, "Just look through the camera. Where are the lights? Just look through the camera." He looks through the camera, and then calls somebody and says, "says Auto, this motherfucker's Auto a magician. Lights. The- <laughs> yeah, yeah. He made lights where there aren't any. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. And obviously, you know, he's." the guy tooting his own horn and saying that but uh yeah but, but also hey. it's it's just a fun story it, and the way he it is it's and it's like you know it feels like he, did, he earned it like yeah, yeah. shit's pretty yeah. pretty wild here. i don't i don't doubt the story i think it's yeah i'm uh, not Aldo. Aldo is i i keep saying Aldo. Aldo is the uh Aldo is the guy who died and and i need to correct that giuseppe rotono is the guy who we hear from in the in the bonus feature, who shoots more Visconti films and shoots more <laughs> the Fellini films, White Knights and and, and other things. Uh, so that's m- my mistake, and I apologize. I want to get that name right, though. Giuseppe Rotono. He's the guy who we hear in the bonus features. Uh, <laughs> and Rotono, definitely. This wizard of, of, yeah. of, of this camera wizard. Yeah. This guy who was a camera operator until this movie and then just <laughs> uh, becomes one of... Sort of unlimited his One way the through this entire film. Yeah. And then... Yeah. I, uh, you know, he gets his chance and he unlocks and he shot the leopard as well and he shot. I mean, uh, yeah, we and we all know how beautiful the leopard is. Leopard is fucking and the leopard. The leopard is, is fucking incredibly gorgeous. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, he shot the Adventures of Baron Munchausen too. <laughs> Not that. Okay. What a what a I career, like man. Like, yeah, I, 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 that's true for like every. I know, I know. It's just every, like this like uh, working camera. Every cinematographer we've ever talked about is. There's like twelve of them, and they're all doing the weirdest shit possible. It's like, all right, well, yeah, I shot this like he, complete polar opposite right. because I guess with cinematographers, right? You're just not. It's not like a director or something. Like the cinematographer is more of a working, more of a working man, right? Like he's just does. Right. He's an artist, but he's a working artist, and he just fucking all right. Somebody needs somebody to shoot this film. Here I am. Yeah. There's only 12 of us. His work in the 80s is ridiculous because he does And the Ship Sails On, the Fellini movie that uh-huh. we, we watched many years ago, and then does Red Sonja 
And then that's the, the, the 1988 Burt Reynolds comedy <laughs> Rent-A-Cop and The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. But he's, he's like shooting at least two or three movies a year through the 80s too. Uh, but yeah, I'm glad the man was getting work. He deserved it. Uh, also, seems like some really, really bad movies in that mix too. Um, and I speak specifically of Rent-A-Cop. Well, it's yeah. got to be a bad movie. There's no way it's a good movie. Okay, um, well, like, I mean, like, we don't need this man's. He's he's absolutely fantastic, uh, and it was a delight to to hear from him in the bonus feature. There is a bonus feature dedicated to uh, Visconti and Verdi, uh, and Visconti's love for opera. I did not watch that. Uh, so you had to tell me. I I, I would love to tell you more about it. Did you uh, not watch it either? Visconti. Uh, oh, okay. No, I watched <laughs> the it. The way you said but, that it sounded like maybe uh, you didn't watch. It's like I would love to tell you, but I can't. I it has it has one really great line that I think you'll appreciate. One of the commentators says, "Italy is made up. All countries are made up, but Italy more so." I agree completely. Uh, in this bonus feature, they get into a little bit about this movie not being Italian neorealism, um, and and one thing they break they break into that I think it's true for. Uh, they talk about it in terms of historical realism, uh, but but in terms of finding a new a new way, a new form of realism. And I think this is true for the uh, the Rossellini historical works that we mm-hmm. watched too. Um where they're they're real. They're not um they're not Italian neorealist. They're not they're not that hard scrapple stuff that we've seen. But they're still very realistic movies. Uh and and perhaps more realistic for being historically grounded. Um, right. They find I mean, they're a way. Just, they're just not neorealism. Okay. They're they're right. I I would I would argue that to a certain extent they're a return to form. Right. They are they are because like by and large since the beginning, lots of artists have wanted to use film to do a thing that kind of I think comes naturally to film, which is like, wow, I want to make a thing that feels real. Right. Right, uh, right, right. And like, as soon as you bring in history, it's like, well, I we, te- we in theory know what happened here, so I want to yeah. use this thing that I can use that that has the power to make things that feel real, to tell a real story or at least a thing set in a real time and place. Um, neorealism is, is special because it's it's got this idea that it's it's not that kind of real. It's the real real. Like we we caught it. it it's. We we get a bastardized nightmare version of it once we get into um, like modern uh, b- uh, reality television, right? Sort of a, a sort of <laughs> right kind of a kind of a Something perverted nightmare realism, of it, right? Where this yeah. like this idea that right. like well, real people who aren't actors doing real things, and like you know, obviously something like um, you know the neo realism that we're that we're talking about isn't really real but it has it's meant to have more of a down-to-earth vibe that, that feels real which again tracks with modern reality television right because like we all know it's fake but it's also like meant to have this sort of feeling of being sort of more authentic or something like that right um so i don't know just saying <laughs> i don't know if i made any yeah. sense there but yeah i tried right. i gave it my all there, i'm yeah. tired now i'm gonna go lay down <laughs> I've, I've given if this my movie had down. been more if this movie had more fidelity to its source material, uh, it could be a historical melodrama that we would not describe as realistic. Uh, whereas 
what we get here is so firmly planted in uh in reality really but in the in a in i an eye to history uh that uh is part and parcel to marxist critique <laughs> but but also right uh just sort of exists here for visconti that uh that really works well this historical grounding materialism that i think is on display here and works other than that that bonus feature wasn't super interesting to me um it's they talk about uh, Visconti's uh, career producing operas, directing operas moving forward, uh, which is not something I'm especially interested in. Um, You're not they do a talk big about the opera, opera man. What are you? Doing? I'm not. I'm not. They do talk about um, his love of opera as it as it shows in the movie and how um, you know. Obviously, I was reminded of Bergman's The Magic Flute, right? Uh, which you know is 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 a film about an opera with the opening sequence here, how the opera music starts before anything is on screen in this movie, how the opening credits are presented in a way that suggests that the people we are seeing on stage might be Farley Granger and Alita Valley. Right. Um, and, and just his, his devotion to realistically portraying that opera scene, uh, how he wanted uh, hundreds of extras to fill out the entirety of the theater, how he wanted to pan across the theater, and how his devotion to doing that actually saved the theater after it burned down or it was damaged by fire in the 90s. Uh, the people rebuilding it went back to this movie Always watch to this see movie. what it originally looked at. Yeah. Gotta love that. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's, there's some interesting little tidbits in there. Uh, but by and large, it was not a bonus feature that is for me. Um, but they're talking about, you know, historical realism versus, versus neorealism. Um, is an interesting little debate. Uh, and obviously that line about Italy being made up, is is very good <laughs> and very true. I think the Technicolor thing is probably what reminded me so much, like led me to talk about um, Gone with the Wind at the beginning the most. Is that there's a yeah, you know, Technicolor has a weird like kind of magical look to it that is that inhabits everything made with Technicolor. It just it's just like comes with the territory. Uh, but combine that with like the sort of drama that 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 is that is in some ways very frivolous it, it it's yeah it's i really did like it a lot i i was unsure if i would when push came yeah. to shove like i was like mm, i don't know whether or not i like this or not but kind of when um because again like i find these kind of movies so stressful uh way more than like re- like when bad things you know like I've seen plenty of movies that are actually much, much worse things happen to people, but somehow like this kind of story just kills me. But um, yeah, it's beautiful. It's a gorgeous movie. It absolutely is. And obviously, you know, we've got three different cinematographers working on it over the course of it. Uh, But there is the unifying vision of what Visconti wants and it all works together. Even as Rotono talks a lot about how 
he was making it up as he went along. Right. <laughs> um, it really went, really worked out really well. Um, and you know, that is also Visconti's unyielding vision. Like, like they could have made those uniforms gray and shot them. So they looked white or whatever needed. Well, to be I think, done. I think the deal but was is that like they, you have to make them gray and they won't look white. Like, right. No matter never what, look white. you're not getting right. white. And yeah. then they're like, no, right. fuck you. We're getting white. Right. And Visconti's like, not only do they have to be white in real life, they will absolutely show up white. They have the to film. also look white on <laughs> like, camera. Willed, yeah, it's like, we're not giving that a, we're not giving an inch on this shit. You're, you're, we're making this yeah. happen come hell or high water. Yeah. Yeah. Insane. Insane that it worked. Um, yeah. Visconti is, uh, is made out a pretty stern, uh, stern guy. He and Krasker obviously didn't get along, and that's why Krasker eventually leaves, stops being cinematographer. Uh, he and Farley Granger apparently didn't get along either, and it really came to a head toward the end of the movie. So much so that uh, one of the reasons that uh, Franz's execution scene is shot so far away uh, isn't isn't just to pull to mind uh, paintings of executions, right? Uh, but also because it was it was shot with a body double because Granger had already come back to America because he was fed up with the movie. Which is really funny. Um, it's it's sort of this like, um, but like it's also like was Granger the one they were talking about how he was just kind of being a bit of a diva and like wouldn't like do his job properly. Was he who they were talking about? Yeah, and, and yeah, and would like disappear all day. Right, and then and they had sort of slapped some sense yeah. into him, which he didn't appreciate. Literally, yes, slapped actually, some literally sense into slapped him at some one sense point. into him. Yeah. Like you don't get the yeah fuck off in the middle of our recording schedule. Yeah. Yeah, Visconti, Visconti trying to keep him from being an American film star, yeah. basically. <laughs> uh, and I imagine, I don't know, uh, Brando in this era probably wouldn't have done that. Uh, but, but I also thinking about Visconti slapping Brando, uh, what the what the end result of that would be might be very right. different too. Like you, I wasn't, you know, I knew it was Visconti and I knew I'd liked Visconti movies in the past. A weird thing about this episode is that we originally had a guest schedule. Our our friend yeah, Jonathan Hayden does the theme music for the show. Um, we had to reschedule, and unfortunately, he couldn't make it back because he's got jury duty this week. Um, oh, really? But uh, yeah, uh, Jonathan's joined us in the past, but it's always for a movie he's I I either know him to like or anticipate him liking. Uh, this week, Jonathan basically said, "Hey, whatever the next film is, I want to be on it." Uh, and I said it, it's a it's Italian a Itali- mid-century drama. Italian period piece <laughs> melodrama uh, called Senso, and he says, "Oh, it's on it's on Max. I'll watch it." Uh, and he did watch it, and we talked a little bit about it. Um, so we made, uh, we we tricked Jonathan into watching a movie that he never would have watched elsewise. Uh, but in talking with him about it, he had a lot of he had a lot of questions because he's. We've we've talked briefly about Italian neorealism before, uh, in the course of talking about other movies I've watched, um, but he's never really watched any Italian neorealists. He had read in in trying to be informed for the podcast, had read that Visconti was a neorealist, but this movie isn't really neorealist, and what that meant. Um, and the answer is nobody fucking so I talk, knows, and <laughs> nobody knows. <laughs> well, what I what I did. 
I explained to him that neorealism is mostly an aesthetic, but it was mostly a it was a materialist choice, uh, and that many uh, many early neorealist films, uh, thinking particularly of Rome Open City, uh, the directors were literally stealing electricity from the U.S. Right. <laughs> occupying forces in order to shoot the films. Like that's that's uh, why they look like they do is because they had no resources. Period. Why why they have non actors playing parts is because they don't have the resources to get actors by and large um obviously here we have all actual actors right uh this is not this is not neorealist in that way rosalini continues to be neorealist in that way sometimes as we move forward like yeah although uh, we've we've had conversations about like whether or not those things are really neorealist or not is 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 pretty hairy territory having Having a non-actor who can't even memorize his lines. And play then the having king. A, like, was he the one? Um, was Rossellini the one who had to like send signals via foots or whatever, or was that somebody else? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Rossellini with with a rope system pulling on people so that they know because because he's that was one where uh, where Bergman was <laughs> Ingrid Bergman was the lead, uh, and she was speaking English, but to people to Italian actors or or non-actors who didn't speak english so in order for them to hit their cue he'd have to pull a rope rope that was tied to their ankle so (laughs) funny uh yeah very silly um no no stories like that of what's happening here obviously um in the in both cuts because i I think there's only the one take that's used uh granger is speaking english and uh and Vali is speaking English, so that they're acting together in English. And in watching the English language version of the film, they just use that audio. Right. Um, they didn't whereas to dub it over because in, it's just fun to do for Italians. They just yeah. like dubbing. Well, the, in the Italian version, Vali dubs herself. Right, right. Um, right. No, I, Granger obviously does not dub himself. Uh, and I do think that the guy they t- they got to dub Granger isn't great. I don't think I don't think he's emotionally putting the emotion into those lines that he needs to. Now obviously I don't speak Italian, so mostly I'm reading anyway. And and the words make sense for who he is and who the movie wants us to believe he right, is. Right. Hearing Granger actually deliver those lines, much better. Very good. Particularly sticking in my mind is uh the scene where he comes to her bedroom at the villa and at one point uh, lamenting uh, that he has to go back to war, uh, he says, uh, if anyone found out about this, I'd be shot. But I guess that would solve all our problems. Really fantastic delivery. Uh, Obviously the same line as the Italian version, but... The Italian delivery, not as good, and just reading it, not as impactful as hearing Ranger actually say it. Right. Uh, he is a good actor. Uh, and even being overdubbed, his pantomime, he's a good actor. Uh, but I don't think the overdub, I don't think the emotion in the Italian <laughs> overdub's voice does him does yeah. him the credit he deserves. But... Uh, but obviously, Valley, dubbing herself, works very well. 
she right, knows what she knows what she's doing. So, um, and I guess Granger really only ever interacts with her on screen. Like, there's the opening scene. He gets some yelling back and forth with his comrades. Well, comrades with his brothers at arm, uh, and uh, and the cousin and Massimo. Um, but uh. But other than that, he basically only ever talks to her right. until he talks to the prostitute at the end in the scene with her. Maybe that's Visconti's workaround for having a star who only speaks one language instead of a rope system. Just right. You're never going to talk to anyone who doesn't speak English. But also, again, because of the nature of the story, right? Like, she's our point of view character. We only know right. him through her. We don't. We are not omniscient. We do not get to see what he is doing when she is not there. Uh so of course, because she he has no business with the people she spends time with, uh, right? Except for in as far as he as, as in as far as she ends up bringing him into thing like places that he should, and he also inserts himself in places he shouldn't be. But like, what I mean to say is that like, it makes sense that we only understand him through her, right? Like we don't have right. any idea of anything about him other than through her. Uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, right. And we, we really only see him. Uh, yeah. When, when she's observing him, right. Right. Or interacting with him. Uh, we do see things that she is not, I, yeah, I mean, she's not our only point. I, I understand right? that. We but see like, things that she doesn't see. But, it's not perfectly. But like, that's um, right. That's Visconti building out the world, right? right. And and but you know, we she, also only really see things that she would not like necessarily be privy to, but like things that are like in yeah. her vicinity, right? Like, like we don't see. Of the, course, up to the point, up to the point of his execution, which she doesn't witness in story. But emotionally, well, witnesses. yeah, there's a sort of yeah, but yeah, that, that's what I mean. Is it, it, it? It's not like strict. It's not um, right. It's not as strict as all that. But it is um, sort of like locked into this idea that uh, kind of her sort of emotional, like personal emotional bubble is like defines what we understand or don't understand. Uh, like she has a sort of a sort of bubble around her that like we as the audience cannot break through if she's not right. sort of invested in it and and wouldn't necessarily kind of have an interest in it, it we don't see it right which is why her sort of the, the field of view for the audience narrows over the course of the film um like yeah to the point where again the war just basically doesn't exist by the end of the film even though like it does and especially after she has the the blow up with you know, after she finds out about him and all that stuff, suddenly the world the war does exist again because now she has to wander through that street in crisis, um, and now suddenly it all come, it's all crushing, crashing back, right? Like the whole world's coming back into into focus. She's distraught, so she does. She's still focused on that thing, and the world gets really scary, right? Like you get this real sense of menace to the whole thing. Uh, as she's wandering yeah. around, right, uh, the the place like the city just feels so scary now, right? Um, right, right, and that's true. Not just after she betrays him, but every moment of her 
wandering the city looking for him. That's what. That's what I. Well, I, what I mean though is that like when she thinks she's just visiting her lover, it has an air of like impatience. It's scary, but there's no fear. If that makes sense, like. Right, she's not right. scared of the soldiers. The school, soldiers are not scary. They're just reveling around her as she carriages through, right? But right. after she breaks it off with him, or you know, I don't know how to. I'm trying to find a another turn of phrase for what happens there. Like after it's revealed, like what kind of how much of a douchebag he is, um, and and that comes to an end. Um, the the night takes on a serious menacing vibe to it. Like the whole place feels intense and scary right now she's just in this city for no fucking reason right this city that is actually really a dangerous place for her to be that is another point where the 90 minute cut in the english language cut fails is to remove more of that in the end right more of her wandering the city more of her having that emotional break. that's unfortunate that like uh, that's that that feels really um like yeah I mean, I wish, the, the, the 90-minute cut, obviously, is kind of a failure yeah. top to bottom. Uh, but I wish that there was more information on why that 90-minute cut exists. I mean, because American viewing audiences, I'm sure. Like, in the past, in the past where we've had an English-language cut of an Italian film, and I think of Terminal Annex particularly, it was because the producer decided to uh, make his own version. Right, right. Uh Whereas there's no there's no real story about that. My here. guess, I mean, I, um, we have a sort of intu- a intuitive understanding of it. I would say, like, you definitely get the impression that somebody said, you know, there's no way like fucking Americans are gonna or Americans are gonna watch a fucking two hour long like Italian historical drama. Maybe it's Visconti just trying to break into the English language and you know the American market. Period. Um, but Terminal Station, not Terminal Annex, is the name, and that was the Jessica movie. That was recut as indiscretion of an American wife, and it's. I would forgive you for not remembering because we watched it like ten right. years ago. Uh, you're you are um, correct that I. But do David not O. Selznick, it. yeah, Selznick and produced it, and he himself oversaw the recut, um, from an eighty-nine minute movie to a seventy-two minute movie for the American release, uh, which isn't even as big a cut as what we're dealing with here. Um, so it's just, there's almost no information on why the cut exists and all of the information, even on like the Criterion DVD is just, this is interesting because Tennessee Williams and Paul Bowles right. wrote. And, and, and I wonder, like, I don't have enough sort of film history knowledge to know. I wonder if what, what makes that interesting and makes it a thing that people point out and talk about and it comes up on this is, is really like kind of how do i explain what i'm trying to say here i'm having trouble with the what what with the words and all um what i mean is i wonder to what extent this was just normal practice and it's only notable because of like who did the english writing like yeah 90 minute you know and it's a big cut in watching it in watching it that is the only thing notable about it I would just be interested in learning right. exactly why it exists because that's the only notable thing about it. Yeah, and I I I would hesitate to get I would I would I would take a shot in the dark to say that like if I had to make a bet, I would bet that like a lot of international films from like 
in general just got new kind of quote unquote tightened up cuts because nobody was gonna nobody would go see them otherwise kind of idea, right? Um Yeah. Like not that they're making it better, but they're just they're like, we're gonna smash this bad boy into a ninety minute runtime so that we can do like a double feature or whatever, or we can do like uh something something kind of silly like that. Who knows? But I, yeah. I do have a hunch that like in the grand scheme of things, I bet because like if you look back at our sort of our personal history with this stuff, I have memories of finding out that like, oh, this film was called blah 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 in this place and, and was different or whatever. But Yeah. Yeah, those things certainly happen. It's just it's usually, usually we don't end up with chop off. The full foreign version. Yeah, I, I, you know. Well, uh, usually we just don't have it on the DVD. Yeah, that's right? also true. I <laughs> yeah. would also, again, I would bet that this one is a little bit special just because you you made a, like, kind of the idea that you were ever going to sell a, a, a two-hour-long Italian, reunif- Italian unification historical drama to the States is kind of just... From a communist. Yeah, it's just kind yeah. of a funny thing to imagine happening at all. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, obviously, I imagine that Indiscretion of American Wife did not play well. Um, I seem to recall it not playing well. Uh, so, you know, these sort of Italian romantic melodramas are something that I can anticipate catching on in the U.S., even if I don't know if they did or not. Right. Right. Um, but. I think Visconti's got forces working against him that aren't just <laughs> the foreign language audience. Obviously, Visconti and and other Italian neorealists realists are doing that thing where they cast an American lead, right? Right. And he does the, this the, again the famous, with Burt Lancaster in The Leopard. The the the, yeah. the infamous we uh, will cast this foreign dude <laughs> and he will make it popular overseas. Right. Um it keeps happening and i can't i can't think of a time that it actually worked no i i <laughs> like i think it i think what we're what we are looking at is some sort of very strange sort of artistic like colonial system where like everybody's got to try yeah. like you're only be you're only really making movies if you're trying to sell them to the states and yeah. and you're kind of constantly met with like well americans with this sort of like falsely sort of premised advice kind of like whenever you deal with like focus testing or or like or these kinds of uh like uh experts of this kind of these kind of fields where they're like it's just inherent it's just like in- inherited knowledge that like everybody knows that you have to have you have to have american leads if you want to sell in america like right. can anybody right. definitively prove that that's true no they cannot because by and large it does not appear to actually be true but that doesn't change the fact that we all like everybody's just taking it as assumed inherent knowledge and and I, yes it does not appear to be true <laughs> like but that does not seem to stop anybody from assuming that it's true and right. just doing it over and over and over again yeah and i don't think granger isn't what makes this movie great and granger isn't what would connect the greatness of this movie is what connects with an audience, right? Um, 
and that's true of the leopard too. Burt Lancaster, fantastic in the I leopard. I mean, I will say that they, they they really struck struck gold with Burt Lancaster, like in a, in a way yeah. that like now maybe they didn't with Granger. Maybe there is the chance that at the time that opened some doors. Well, I I, well, I, I really shown. do think that part of it, like I I think there's a real practical thought process of like the only way we're going to get an American publisher like uh to like pick it up. And 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 put it in theaters in the states as if I can like if we can say, well, X famous American is in it, like people will go see it because of that. Like you know what I mean? There's a sort of like yeah. a sort of a hog trading thing that seems to happen to make that right to make that whole thing work. Yeah, and almost certainly there are myriad films where the actor wasn't big enough, or even the big actor wasn't in a good enough movie. And an American actor did not say well, an and Italian I, production. Yeah, I mean, from... and the thing about it is, is that like that—that's just a weird false premise that like, in the end, never seems to pay off, and we know that. And but it's like it's like a it's just a way to get like uh you know there's X number of boxes need to be checked, and this lets us check that box so that we can put it in put it in the theater. Like so that right. some American right. company will actually put it out. Like most uh, Visconti films we've interacted with so far, uh, it doesn't seem like this one actually played well in America. No, the thing about it is, it's a very beautiful movie, but like, yeah, being beautiful just isn't enough to play. Sometimes, yeah, in a well, not to a mainstream audience. That's certainly. what I mean. It's like to, to like an, an American audience, like a mainstream American audience, that's just not going to do it. Like you're not you're not giving them any of what they're looking for, so you're not going to make any headway into actually like, you know, oh everybody. It turns out everybody accidentally loved this movie. Like, that's just not going to be the result because this is not a movie. Like, honestly speaking, like again, it's it's an Italian historical drama, and especially because Gandhi wants to make it such a historical drama. Like right. you're not that's just not even even with a cut, that's just not gonna work. You know, right. you know, maybe, you know, Italian uh, Italian film imported into the States will work. It's just you need it to be in line with things that Americans want at the time Americans want to watch, right? Which is not Italian historical drama. <laughs> right. And not Granger as a bad guy. Right. Right. Uh, not yeah yeah. Oh, he, he's yeah. a very bad guy. Very 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 <laughs> bad. Not. And he's he he's good as a bad guy. Yeah, he does a very uh, good job. His acting is, think, is is excellent. It is he's, yeah. Especially at the end there where he's just and like I think, really getting real shitty. <laughs> it's real good. Yeah, in the apartment. Yeah, it's yeah. real yeah. good. No, he's you like he's fantastic. You, you did not like him before. You thought you didn't like him before. <laughs> now. Right. You can't wait for her to get this man killed. Right, right. <laughs> I also like Absolutely. the notion that we get to the end, right? And she goes and turns him in the officer, and the officer tells her in, in, in Italian, like, this is, you're committing murder. Like, you are doing murder. And, like, basically it makes it sound like he's not going to do anything about it. Like, fuck off. We're not, right. Like, we're not here to, to do your revenge for you. And then tells in, Austrian Italian or Austrian uh, German 
to all of his guys, like, go get that son of a bitch. We're going to we, we go, <laughs> shoot a man. <laughs> right. Uh, right. And, it, and there's this really beautiful thing about it because we're operating on this idea like, oh, well, she does not, presumably does not speak Austrian German, right? And so right. she doesn't understand that she was successful in her and then, so she does just leave, right? She's in a she's a mess, but she just leaves because she doesn't really know that she has successfully killed this man, right? Like there's there's that as extra little bit about the fact, like the idea that like again we have this sort of dramatic irony of like we oh know yeah that's that's that fair. She does not know. her 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 emotional breakdown is not necessarily that she knows she just got him killed. No, she it's, does not know. It's possibly that she doesn't know that she because just got him killed and just the weight of everything that's happened is finally just, caught up to It's just a pure it. emotional breakdown. And the reason why I say that is because the guy running down the stairs is yelling, like, go get him. Like, go get that fucker. Right? Like, almost yeah. immediately, like, five minutes, like, she's walking down the stairs. But she doesn't react to that guy yelling that. She's already in her emotional state She's already breaking down. But, like, you would imagine that if she knows that this is actually happening, she would have some sort of extra reaction to it, right? She would, like, there would be something, right? But she doesn't, she's just continuing along the emotional path she's already on. She thinks that, for all intents and purposes, she thinks that she was not successful in killing this guy. And so that's part of her emotional reaction is this like thing that we know that she doesn't know. Um, it's it's very good because she just yeah it's very clear that she doesn't speak German. She does not know uh, right. what's going on, uh, and that's that's fascinating. Like I just I'm I'm I am deeply fascinated by the ending of, the ending of this movie. Like as much as I hate these kinds of like dramas in the in the sort of I can't handle the tension, uh, this kind of like emotional tension. The ending of this one is just so fucking good, because like yeah. here she is just having an emotional breakdown about this guy that like ruined her life and how she threw her life away and everything like that. Meanwhile, they're absolutely going to they're absolutely going to fucking blast that guy. Yeah. Like, but she has no idea. It, it's just I don't know. It just that's something that does something for me. I don't know what it is, but it really does something for me. I was I was so impressed by this movie and so happy to have tricked. Our dear dear friend Jonathan yeah. into watching it. We should trick him into watching uh, other without the opportunity, this. without the opportunity to ever talk about it. Uh, hopefully, he'll be on an actual episode soon. Well, we will see more from Visconti in the distant future. It's not till I think Spine nine hundred twenty <laughs> something that we see another Visconti film. Uh, so we're we're, we're um, on track with Visconti, where we get to watch him every five years. Yeah, um, and then we've got uh, we've certainly got more from Giuseppe Rotono, uh, the cinematographer. We will see a lot more from him. Uh, I can't Both do in the collection. We're gonna and, not uh, watch another Visconti for ten years, almost. Yep. Yeah. Jeez, yeah. So much. Yeah. Visconti's, Visconti's a long way off. Uh, it's only been five years since the last one, and now we double it. So, uh, and by the time we get to that one, maybe there will be more Visconti twenty years on. Uh, right. When right. we're eighty years old and still doing this podcast. Growth, yeah. This week we've been talking about Senso from nineteen fifty four. Directed by Luciano Visconti, based very loosely, thankfully, on yeah. a book by the same name by Camilo Boito. Next week, uh, we'll be watching The Times of Harry Milk by Robert Epstein. Thank you so much for listening to Lost in Criterion. I'm, as always, Leon Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick O.H. Ari Dorgan, and we'll see you next time.
Bye. Bye. This has been Lost in Criterion, hosted by me, Adam Glass. Find me on Twitter, at TheAdamGlass. My co-host is John Patrick Ovatari Dorgan. You can find him on Twitter, at JPatrickDorgan. Big thanks to Jonathan Hape for our theme song. Check him out at JonathanHape.BandCamp.com or hear more from him on any streaming service. Also, thanks to all our Patreon supporters, iTunes reviewers, and Redbubble customers. And hey, thank you for listening.